Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year! That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time-boxing, single-tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself. So all the stuff you say to yourself about your ADHD is what moves us from pain to suffering. And that's what, you know, radical acceptance is about, is about you know, just facing the reality of what you're dealing with and, and figuring it out what you need to do and then accepting the difficulties and then not being engulfed by it and not avoiding it or disowning who you are or not running away from or fearing who you are. I mean, living with ADHD is tough enough, but it's not half as tough as as this feeling of disowning who you are and wanting to get rid of who you are and, and, and avoiding uh, all of life because you don't think you're entitled to <laughs> to embrace it all because you have clutter or difficulties all around you or you can't, you know, do domestic things very well. So it takes a lot of work to really accept and hold both sides of all sides of yourself. Hello and welcome to the Women and ADHD podcast. I'm your host, Katie Weber. I was diagnosed with ADHD at the age of 45, and it completely turned my world upside down. I've been looking back at so much of my life, school, jobs, my relationships, all of it with this new lens, and it has been nothing short of overwhelming. I quickly discovered I was not the only woman to have this experience, and now I interview other women who, like me, discovered in adulthood they have ADHD and are finally feeling like they understand who they are and how to best lean into their strengths, both professionally and personally. Hello and welcome back to my special Top 10 Replay series. After reaching 150 episodes, I decided to re-release 10 interviews that really have stood out to me over the years and have stayed with me in some particular way. Either it was the topic or the conversation or the feedback I received from listeners, for whatever reason, I've chosen these 10 episodes that I feel deserve a replay. So if you missed this one the first time around, I hope you'll get a chance to hear it now. And if you already listened to it when it originally aired, I hope you will enjoy listening to it again. I feel it is only appropriate to kick off the month of October, which is ADHD Awareness Month, with this particular episode. This week, I'm re-releasing my interview with Sari Solden, which originally aired as episode 63 in December of 2021. Getting the chance to interview Sari was a dream come true for me, and I'm not at all surprised that this interview has been one of my most listened to episodes to date. Sari's books have been so influential in my own life and the lives of so many women I've gotten the chance to meet and work with along the way. Now make sure to stick around because at the end of this episode, I check back in with Sari to talk about the new re-release of her book, Journeys Through Adulthood, and we talk about the current state of ADHD in women 
And I get to tell her in my awkward, stumbling way how much her groundbreaking work has meant to me over the years. Okay, so here as part of my top 10 replay series, I give you episode 63 with Sari Solden. Now, if you had asked me when I first started this podcast who my dream guest would be, I would have said today's guest. She is the godmother of ADHD, psychotherapist, author, and researcher Sari Solden. When Sari Solden wrote Women and Attention Deficit Disorder back in the mid-90s, she was the first researcher to look at how this neurodiversity appears differently in women than in men and why that is. And now, 30 years later, she continues to counsel adults with ADHD and specializes in the unique ways in which ADHD presents in women. In addition to her groundbreaking research and her books on ADHD, she also serves on the Professional Advisory Board of ADA, the Attention Deficit Disorder Association, and was the recipient of their award for outstanding service by a helping professional. Her books include Women with ADD, Journeys Through Adulthood, and the workbook A Radical Guide for Women with ADHD, which, in my opinion, should be required reading for all late-diagnosis women. It was such an absolute pleasure and honor to chat with Sari, and we talk all about the connections she made 30 years ago when it comes to what ADHD looks like in women, why ADHD is overlooked in girls, and why women tend to get diagnosed much later in life. We discuss traits that are unique to women, as well as the current trendiness of an ADHD diagnosis, and Sari reveals how she might rename ADHD if she could. Without further ado, I cannot think of a better way to celebrate one year of this podcast than offering this conversation with Sari. Enjoy. So this is such a treat to be able to interview you because like I said, your book was the first book I read after I was diagnosed and I re or I listened to it. And then I re-listened to it again recently in preparation for this interview with this like year of behind me. And it was really interesting to sort of have that different perspective of, um, you know, when I first read it, it was just like, I was going through that feeling of like, you know, like the, like the book says, you mean, I'm not crazy and I'm not lazy and I'm not stupid. And then this is not just me. Like there's so much of, I think what is so profound about your book, yeah. um, is that, you know, there is a lot of shame in these private experiences that, that, um, you know, self-care and, and hygiene and sort of a lot of these things that, um, I was realizing for the first time, um, was a shared experience among women with ADHD. And now a year later, I'm like, yeah, but I still have ADHD. <laughs> so, right. So now it's like, just meaning that like, there's a lot of things that are still a struggle, you know, like even, even with the diagnosis behind you, like you still are living with this and sort of what does that mean? Um, well, that's, and- well, yeah, no, that's a really important point to, to explore because our last book, and if you read radical guide for women, you know, I mean, that is the point of it is that you have to, this is a chronic condition, you know, your brain and all the stuff you're going to do for it, your medication, all that strategies, tips, tools, whatever, that's your brain. That's not you. And you have to sort of untangle those two things and come to terms with it. This is chronic. This is nothing. To, and, it, and you don't want to approach it like you're, you want to get over it because that's who you are. And you just want to get help for your brain difficulties and accept them because they're chronic. And then the rest of it is getting on with your life like you are and, you know, and, and accepting and valuing yourself. So that is an important, uh, yeah. So, you know, you sometimes it's framed like, okay, take this medication or get a diagnosis and you'll get over this. And that's not true, you know, and you don't want to get fixed, you know. It's right. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Only gods and, I, and furniture get fixed, right? 
<laughs> yes. And I sort of feel like there is so much literature out there that, that revolves around that idea of like, we'll cure it, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, um, get out, you know, master your ADHD. And oh, a lot of that can right. be really problematic. It is. Um, that's, that is the most problematic. So that's why we wrote that other book, which is really helping a lot of women right now. Cause you know, I wrote the first book in 95, originally it was published. And so then this is years later, the radical guide is, uh, is to disavow women of that, of what you just said, you know, right. like, what is the goal? Yeah. The goal is not to get over who you are, you know, so. So I did want to ask you, because I know you wrote the, your first book 30, almost 30 years ago, well, which blows me away. Edition. Yeah. Revised edition was in uh, 2005. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Which is what I'm assuming I listened to because I listened to your you read the audio book, so that would have been the revised edition. Oh, well, that was even much later. That was when I <laughs> when I put out the audio book. So yeah. Um, but yeah. I, what I do like, you know, what I have been asking throughout this throughout my interviews with women, and even though I know you're sort of on as as an expert, I am curious about your personal yeah. experience with your diagnosis. Like, how old were you, and what was happening in your life that led you to sort of make these connections when practically nobody was making these right. connections. I mean, when we say you were a pioneer in women in ADHD, you're really the first one off the boat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like, <laughs> no, that's a really interesting question because, uh, yeah, it was in the very early nineties and yeah, I didn't, your question was what made you think you had ADHD. I didn't think about that. There wasn't anything, uh, that we were talking about, about ADHD without hyperactivity at that point. Uh, but a lot of great things came together at the same time. Um, I had been really but I had been trying to solve this mystery of what I've been struggling with for, it was about age 40, for 40 years, massive disorganization, you know, severe and chronic disorganization, shy, not talking at all, not being able to organize my thoughts, you know, but very smart and hardworking. I just was struggling, you know, and I was very smart. It's called twice exceptional. We, we call that now, if you've heard that term, it's for people who are twice exceptional, like they're both ends of the bell curve, like you're really smart, but you have all these severe challenges. And that's sort of a, even a harder thing to understand. So it didn't matter how much I was achieving, I would just create more stuff that I couldn't control. And I was very frustrated. And so but I wound up at a counseling agency, uh, for, and they had a special program for adults with learning disabilities, but it was in a counseling agency. So I always was looking at adults with differences like this in the context of who they are and their self and their relationship and their self-concept. So it was just a lucky place that I ended up. I was majoring in uh, minority mental health. And just through that program, I got connected to this other program. Um, And to work at this program, I had to take a test, uh, a learning disability test. And it was the first time I ever had incredible difficulty that was discovered. You know, they gave me some crazy memory test that I imagine other people could pass and they gave me sort of nonsensical looking Martian looking people and told me their names and then they'd go back to it. And I couldn't remember a thing. And so it was the first time I saw, wow, I have a severe problem with memory that I've been trying to compensate for all my life. They had no idea about. Then my spare time in between clients, I was surrounded by books about learning disabilities. And I was looking through to find an answer to what the severe and chronic disorganization was all about. And, you know, they discussed it in terms of learning disabilities. At least I saw something identified there. And then a couple books started coming out into my office. One was Driven to Distraction, which was great, but it was the first time we understood that uh, adults had difficulties, even though they might have lost their hyperactivity. But it was still mostly about men and people who used to be hyperactive. 
And it wasn't until a little bit later that we started talking about that people could have these difficulties without having ever had uh, having hyperactivity. And that's when we started understanding women also had something like this. Um, so I did read that book, uh, Lazy, You Mean I'm Not Lazy, Stupid, or Crazy. And that was the first time I saw adults in general uh, described in a way that made me think, wow, I think that's me. I went to a conference cross country, the first ADHD con uh, conference in Ann Arbor. And it was what hundreds of adults for the first time gathered together. And it was the first time I described that in my book, how I saw that adults pass for normal outside and that I was too. And that this is the first time people were just like, women were just like going through their purses and throwing all this stuff around and like interrupting and, you know, <laughs> writing on their hands when they want to remember something. It was like the first time that everybody was with their tribe. And I understood this was a, a real thing. And then I did take a, a, I had a diagnostic evaluation at that point, you know, a complete neuropsych evaluation. I saw this huge split between my performance, which was really low and my verbal, which is extremely high. And, you know, showed some of the difficulties with working memory and, and all these other organizational issues. But basically, you know, I couldn't stay awake. I had sort of like this borderline narcolepsy my whole life. I couldn't stay awake. I had a very sleepy brain. You know, I couldn't, women's stuff, I couldn't go shopping. I couldn't go to the grocery store. I was so overwhelmed all the time by all the sensory input. I couldn't uh, filter out, you know, even at that point in the agency, I couldn't imagine people were sitting at the um, staff table writing notes and talking to each other or like going from one room to another it was just I, demands for notes and, and noise from the outside I was just like it was a nightmare you know for me I didn't know what was going on and then I really had a dramatic um, response to the to even a small amount of medication at that time and I started talking I started speaking up in groups I started organizing my thoughts I stayed awake and it really just a little bit of medication really helped you know change my life and but I had clients at the time, so I started studying them and looking at the, and tracking the differences between women and men. And that's where, you know, even if they had the same differences, the shame that the women felt about these difficulties, you know, were really uh, so apparent that I started really focusing on it. And yeah, that, that's a topic that we discuss a lot in my interviews with women, which is, you know, that the domestic pressures and and kind of, you know, how so much of the um, self-doubt when it comes to like, is this even ADHD or am I just fill in the blank? Right. Am I just lazy? Am I just disorganized? Um, I think, you know, like, I, I feel like a lot of the time I'm like, maybe I'm not, maybe this isn't ADHD. Maybe I'm just a feminist <laughs> living in this misogynist country. I feel like so many of the specific issues that women are facing, uh, come down to our role, you know, our domestic role, our role as wives, our role as mothers and the expectations, the domestic oh, expectations. Yes. That, that's what my book really focused on. And I think that's why it was so popular besides people identifying themselves and understanding shame. It was about the, what happens when women feel they can't meet these cultural roles. So it wasn't just this era, it was all the way back. The cultural roles that they've learned to uh, idealize and internalize, and even if intellectually they don't believe it anymore, deep down they still compare themselves ruthlessly to other women and in these domestic sec areas that conflict so much with their executive function difficulties. That's where the shame and the hiding and the embarrassment and the disparities in power in their relationships often come because Women still feel, it's like the 1950s in my office, really, no matter who these women are, what they've achieved deep down when they can't do those domestic things very well, they feel such shame. And like I had someone write to me the other day, I said, 
you know, who would think that like argument about the pots and pans would, you know, make me think about many ways that I could die, you know, something so poignant because, you know, still the shame, no matter how successful you are about like, you didn't do the pots and pans or why are the dishes in the sink for three days? Or why didn't you fold the laundry? You know, even if the men are helping with tasks, it's, there's still these deep gender role it, feelings of failure when women can't do these things is the same way or easily. And so it's really hard for people to understand uh, mm-hmm. you as woman and people you live with. Right. And, and I think so much, so many of us come to this diagnosis through recognizing that emotional toll of being undiagnosed, right? And living this life kind of undiagnosed and not understanding what is actually going on. And so you're beating yourself up. And and so, but then at the same time, the DSM has nothing about emotions. <laughs> and so again, it's like, I feel like it, it you, you we're going in circles in terms of like how hard it is, how hard it must be to educate women as to what this actually is. Yeah. And as like you say, it's so much better now because when I, you know, finally wrote this book and luckily it was at a time where internet was just beginning to be used, believe it or not. And so that allowed women to start talking to each other and to find their own experiences for themselves to go to conferences and gather together because I didn't know, I was really confronted by a huge amount of resistance from the male (laughs) dominated field, you know, academics were really used to controlling this field and telling parents about their kids, but all of a sudden adults, men and women were coming into the field and they were, and they were taking over and, and, uh, and they changed the whole field and women and drove the whole change by going to their doctors and saying, no, this is real. This is who I am. So women really, by talking to each other, like you said, really changed the face of this. And it it's hard to imagine. I know for you guys that we didn't talk to each other before that. There wasn't the internet. And so people were even more and more isolated. They had no way to find these things out. And so once that happened, this is just built and built and built where women are, are talking to each other all around the world now. So. Yeah, it is mind blowing. I mean, that I think that's the the one most common reaction I get from for reviews of the podcast, which is like, I finally, I feel less alone. And I feel like I'm, you know, that there's nothing wrong with me that I'm listening to other women who are bright and accomplished, who are experiencing the same kind of secret things that I've been going through this whole, my whole life. I know. I think that's the most therapeutic thing I think for women is to, uh, because when they hear other women who are successful and, you know, really wonderful women, and then they are describing the same struggles that they have, they're forced to sort of shift their own self-image you know it's it's a you know, cognitive shift because they say well you know I can see their strengths I can see who they are, they are. and so they start to internalize a, a new self you know narrative right yeah and I and I feel like I, I've I've said this before um in in the podcast, which is like, I feel like half the quote unquote treatment of Dyke of ADHD is the, that self-realization and that shifted narrative and just understanding and the research that comes with like, you know, realizing um, where your behaviors are coming from. Well, I mean, and, it's just tricky. And, you know, therapists have a long way to go with helping women with ADHD because this is, again, there's your brain, there's, you know, and your behaviors and your difficulties but if they don't, but if they don't come from a non-pathologizing point of view, or see yourself over your symptoms and help you really uh, heal, not cure, heal, which means like see yourself as whole, and hold on to both these sides of yourself. You have strengths, you have 
weaknesses, you have challenges like everybody, and then you also have who you are as a person, your core traits, and it's much more complex than just controlling, you know, the way you pay attention, and there's layers and layers of ADHD, not just because it's different because of the hyperactivity, it's because of the late diagnosis, like you said, and because then you have layers and layers of shame, and layers and layers of not understanding your experience, and filling in the blanks in all sorts of distorted ways, and that's what therapy for ADHD is really about. You know, you can have coaching and, and all these other things, but often women who weren't diagnosed till late have many layers of shame and, and distorted self narratives and hiding and withdrawing and it just snowballs. So that's why therapy for ADHD for women, you know, has to be more prominent. This episode is brought to you by Loop Earplugs. Loop earplugs are my ultimate companion to a calmer and more focused life. If you're also an adult with ADHD, autism, or sensory issues, rest assured Loop earplugs are designed with us in mind. Whether you're at your favorite coffee shop or in your office cubicle or simply at home with your kids, with their advanced noise reduction technology, Loop earplugs gently lower the volume without blocking out the world completely. They're made from soft, hypoallergenic materials that are comfortable for extended wear. They fit snugly in your ears, ensuring you can wear them discreetly throughout the day. Plus, they come with a sleek carrying case, making them convenient to take with you wherever you go. Now that I'm in grad school, I love to use the Engage Plus loops whenever I'm walking around campus. They're specifically designed to reduce the level of sound entering my ear without completely blocking out all noise. My teenager loves her quiet loops for studying, and my son loves his Engage Kids loops for short intervals like riding the school bus or taking tests at school. As a listener of this podcast, you'll get 10% off your order when you visit loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD. That's loopearplugs.com slash womenADHD, and you can find that link in the episode show notes. Your life, your volume. Again, like once once women start to understand what is actually happening, then they're able to kind of move forward and advocate and ask for the accommodations that they need. One of the major accommodations being therapy. But even like I just notice in like even in the smallest details in my life, like going to a doctor's office and saying like, you're throwing a lot of information at me. I'm going to need you to write this down. Or can you send me an email or, you know, or. Exactly. No, I mean, that's like one of the main things we do in therapy, you know, is like this communication skill which I think many young women are much better able to do than older women. You know, I find that this new generation of women just value diversity now, aren't so embarrassed by it or more willing to advocate for themselves. And that's what really changes things. When you can say things like that, that is a really hard thing to say. Uh, you feel such shame in the doctor's office or any place where information is coming at you and to be able to say, I, to describe you know, I have difficulty with, you know, remembering this, I need you to write this down, or can you give it to me in the way I need it? That's a huge thing. And that's, you know, really what women struggle with, because they feel like, you know, they're embarrassed, or they feel like revealing those difficulties means something terrible about themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, it, you know, and even with my relationship with my husband, I think one of the biggest realizations I had was how I was valuing so much what he brought to the table, I wasn't paying any attention to what I brought to the table. And I think that that's another thing too, that comes with that understanding, which is like being able to realize what you, what gifts you do have, as opposed to focusing. And I don't know if that's like, again, if that's like a dopamine thing where we, 
we're, I know Hallowell and Rady talk a bit about the, you know, the, the devil on the shoulder and, um, that idea that like, we tend to kind of focus on the negative, you know, as a result, but that idea, like how we undermine the things that we do bring to the table because right, we're focusing women, so much on what we're not doing. Right. We're focusing on the negative. It's, and it's often in that role that's the most difficult for us when we're at home or with our husbands at executive functions. So we already are very uh, easy, you know, to blame ourselves. Often the spouse isn't even bringing that much negativity. It's often what's coming from you yourself. And you're exactly right. Women don't value these things that they're good at because they're invisible. Maybe they don't value the, all the invisible caring, emotional, you know, taking care of people and all the invisible things that, that they do or visible, but not so dramatic as the dishes in the sink. So women automatically, you know, compare themselves and, and, and lose power in the relationship because they don't, and then they don't see that their partners also struggle most of the time with some, everybody struggles. So they're only saying, oh, ADHD is like the worst thing in the world. They could be married to a, anybody who's got their own struggles, but they only see that ADHD is like the worst thing in the world. So women do this to themselves because they didn't have a very self-soothing voice growing up. They didn't have anybody helping them understand you know, that's not you, that's your challenges. And that's, you know, this is who you are as a person or no advocacy. And so part of therapy is helping them develop or groups, helping them develop that internal valuing voice. And also re- understanding that the voice you hear in your head is not always necessarily t- the truth. <laughs> I think that was something I learned from <laughs> dialectical behavioral therapy. And and uh, I think a lot of women I have interviewed came to DBT intuitively through, you know, because so many of us were diagnosed with other mood disorders. So, you know, we've, we've so many of us have found value in something like DBT and CBT um, as you know, even before we understood what ADHD was. Oh, yeah. And then those kind of skills, like you asked about radical acceptance. I mean, that's the same kind of idea that there's, that originally came from DBT, you know, that idea, uh, you know, that you there's pain and we all have pain about things we can't control or we don't have any say over. There's, we have to face the painful, often frustrating, difficult reality sometimes of living with an unruly brain, but we don't want to add to it we don't want to add pain from pain. We don't want to add suffering. Suffering comes from, oh, this isn't fair. What's wrong with me? Or why can't I do this? Or I'm such a loser. Or oh, I'm just going to, I, I got to get over this. I can't let myself do anything else till I get over this. This is terrible. So all the stuff you say to yourself about your ADHD is what moves us from pain to suffering. And that's what, you know, radical acceptance is about, is about, you know, just facing the reality of what you're dealing with and, and figuring it out what you need to do and then accepting the difficulties and then not being engulfed by it and not avoiding it or disowning who you are or not running away from or fearing who you are. I mean, living with ADHD is tough enough, but it's not half as tough as, as this feeling of disowning who you are and wanting to get rid of who you are and, and, and avoiding uh, all of life because you don't think you're entitled to, <laughs> to embrace it all because you have clutter or difficulties all around you, or you can't, you know, do domestic things very well. So it takes a lot of work to really accept and hold both sides of all sides of yourself. That was so well said. And I, I think you talk about that a lot in your book. Um, the difference between radical acceptance and um, just, you know, not being open to improvement or what's the word I'm looking for? Like just feeling resignation almost. Well, yeah, um, that acceptance, people are afraid of that word. They think it means resignation or just settling for something less or passivity. And acceptance is like the most active, hardest thing you'll ever do. And it's ongoing and it's constant, whether it's ADHD or other kind of adversity. So acceptance is a very active 
process. It's not what people think. And you can do whatever you want. You, you might not be able to do it in the same way that other people do, which might lead you to a very unique kind of experience because you have to work around in a different way. But it certainly doesn't mean that you're, you know, you're going to have to be held back. You're held back by, by pushing away who you are and, and hiding who you are. That's what holds you back. And I think there is a lot of confusion too, in terms of how we talk about ADHD, because I often, you know, I, I get very confused because sometimes I will refer, we'll talk about ADHD as though it's a genetic brain function. Um, and this is something you need to learn to live with. Uh, but then there's also the ADHD, which is your behaviors and, and the traits that, you know, you need to manage and treat and master. And, you know, the way, you know, I think that idea of like, getting over some of the problematic behaviors like forgetfulness or, or, you know, distraction. And, and it can be sort of difficult to think about what exactly are we talking about with ADHD? Is it, uh, you know, is it, well, it's, it's not one thing. That's why it's confusing. And I don't like the term ADHD. I don't really use it anymore, you know, because first of all, it changed over the years. So many of us were stuck way back in the ADD thing, you know, and we, <laughs> you know, the H really threw a lot of us for many years, you know, it just changes all the time. And I prefer, you know, when describing it to describe the actual difficulty. So I much rather say women with executive function difficulties, which is, you know, management of certain kinds of functions that, um, that make coordinating logistics difficult. So executive function, I always use neurodiversity now instead of, you know, ADHD, because it's non, you know, it's not blaming, and it's non pathologizing, and it's actually valuing diversity, and we're, everybody's brain is different. And so, because there's not one ADHD brain, it's just misleading. Uh, and, you know, yeah, eventually, I like to say like a dopamine imbalance or something, and eventually, it'd be just like thyroid or, you know, something where, you know, it's not a big deal, you just need to correct the, you know, some work with the imbalances and, and manage your lifestyle, like with any chronic you know, condition. But yeah, I, I'm not a big fan of the word ADHD. Yeah, that's uh, that's a question I'll save for later. But yeah, I ask everybody in my podcast because it was so problematic and I think really keeps a lot of women from from pursuing a diagnosis or at least researching what exactly it is because it's, it's such true. a confusing acronym. I know I've been answering some of your questions as we go. Cause... That's fine. We, we <laughs> This is the beauty of an ADHD podcast. It's all over the place. Yeah, exactly. Um, you were to something about neurodiversity yeah. and... Um, well, you asked me well in your questions like what do I prefer to call it um so that's why I, I answered that um, um well yeah so if you if you could rename it today what would was, you yeah. do you, would you call it well I just um, I'd always just describe it as, as women with neuro you know I describe it more you know women with executive function problems now that could be due to many different things but I mean I think it more captures the actual struggle you know I don't think it's important to label everything specifically you know because with ADHD it's a syndrome and it's chronic it's not constant it's variable depending on where your environment is so sometimes you'll you'll be focusing great sometimes you'll do things even better than other people so it's just a broad base broad brush kind of approach and it's why it's difficult for women now and, and it's become like a t uh, you know joke line ADHD is not it's, it's not taken very seriously. It's become, you know, just stereotypical and, and it doesn't uh, help women understand that, um, you know, that they have something they're coping with. that isn't what you traditionally think of as ADHD prevents them from often from still from getting diagnosed, even though that's, you know, improved a lot 
Yeah, I think, you know, it was really surprising to me when I was diagnosed because I wanted to shout it from the rooftops as, as, as many women, I think when they are diagnosed, realize, you know, this is such a revelation. And I, the general reaction when I said I was diagnosed with ADHD was, oh, I'm so sorry, okay. as though I had said I was diagnosed Answer, with a terminal right. illness. Right? Well, yeah, no, and that's why I say other. It, it becomes something that you like. You excise like a you know like a mole or like a cancer or something like that's how it is thought of. You know, um, and it's you know great that you had that impulse to tell people because most older women or in the old days, whatever you know, most women were hiding that like, and uh, so because of the reaction that often. From people have from the media or from just other stereotypes that ADHD is this crippling, terrible thing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just who you are. I mean, it's how your brain functions. You know, as you see things in a fresh perspective, it, it causes some crazy things in your life, but it also makes, you know, other things possible that other people wouldn't, you know, pursue. So now since the pandemic, there has been quite a increase in ADHD diagnoses and also um, all across, you know, in ASD diagnoses and self-diagnoses. So we've got the rise of TikTok and social media and just this, you know, the these relatable memes that I think a lot of people are seeing, having a lot more time to scroll through social media, seeing themselves in these videos, in these memes, feeling like, oh my goodness, like I feel seen in a way that mm-hmm. I have never felt seen before. And um and, you know, so I feel like there's been this incredible rise in the, in diagnoses, but then at the same time, there's also been this rise in the backlash of like, oh, it's just trendy. Oh, it's probably not ADHD. It's probably something else, you know, seek a medical diagnosis, which I think you should, but, yeah. you know, I think that there, there's sort of hand in hand with this increase has been this backlash, like, oh, it everybody doesn't have ADHD. That's not possible. It's right. got to be something else, right? right? That's been so, there since the beginning, though. That kind of backlash has been there from the beginning, though. And it just takes different forms and it wasn't on social media yet. But yeah, nobody believed that, uh, that ADD was real at all, you know, mm-hmm. and nobody... Uh, so there's always been backlash of conservative groups. I remember Scientology had a big thing about it, you know, and Ritalin was a big deal. And, you know, when I first went to get medication, you know, the pharmacist wouldn't tell me at all what kind of medication they had because they thought we were casing the joint, you know, that we're all drug addicts. And, you know, it was very shame-based from the beginning. So there's always been a backlash. I think the pandemic, yeah, I think just being on Zoom now and being able to seek mental health treatment much more easily has helped. And, and I think that a lot of women, you know, they just were forced to stop. They were overwhelmed, like you were saying, by kids and everything right in front of them and all these pulls on their attention. But there was also more easily access to information and to connection. But I think it also maybe was a tipping point for a lot of women. Like, okay, they, they sort of were holding it together. And then whew, then they were able to see, well, okay, I can't escape this anymore. This is what happens in, you know, real time and real life. And so I think that just became much more prominent as well as uh, more evident as well as this rise in connectivity from internationally and just the whole field exploding. You know, I wrote yeah. this book in 95 and nobody ever heard of it, basically women with ADHD. And so uh, it's just been dramatic and, you know, Europe was always behind us and now, you know, internationally, everybody is understanding this now. So just the volumes of people and ways to connect have grown so much. Mm-hmm. So Do you I think,
Yeah. What women are, I or, or do you think it's much more than, you know, you hear that number 10, ten, around 10% heard, of the not, population. Well, then has. that is more, I haven't heard 10% because it was more like 5% when I was uh, coming up. So oh, that, maybe I'm I'm rounding that, up. <laughs> you could be right. I, I just haven't been so connected to what they're saying now. At first they thought that, you know, women were just a very teeny percent though, you know, and so then it got equal. And, uh, so I don't, I don't know the latest, uh, estimates, uh, but I'd be interested if you find that somewhere. Yeah. Maybe I'm just thinking about, uh, you know, I, when I explain ADHD to my children, I have a a daughter who's in high school and then I have a son who is in fifth grade. And so, you know, once I was diagnosed, of course I was, I've been looking at everything they do with a fine tooth comb and everything my parents did. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I, you know, explain it to them like being left-handed, you know, where I say, you know, imagine my daughter's left-handed and that's about 10% of the population is left-handed. So I'm always like, you know, imagine if when I was a kid and actually when I was a kid, I'm old enough that my kindergarten teacher forced me to become right-handed. Right. And so I was originally left-handed. I was forced to become right-handed. And then when I looked back at my report cards after my diagnosis, it was just like criticism about how my handwriting was terrible and <laughs> and how messy it was and how I had to focus on being neater. And I was like, yeah. you can't, I was like, come on guys. Uh, <laughs> but I was saying, you know, like imagine yeah. not having scissors that were for lefties. And, and then everybody said, why can't you cut, you know, or, or not having a left-handed desk. And so that seemed to be like the analogy that yeah, works best I when I, when I talk to my kids about, uh, you know, the idea of accommodations and how, you know, instead of saying, well, I guess you just can't cut, um, saying, what do you need to be great at cutting? And yeah, I think no. that was something that a, a big, a big shift for me, just in terms of, you know, I was also in the gifted program growing up. And so my parents always would talk to me about the fact that like, you know, you have this really high IQ, but your grades are terrible. And they wanted me to feel good about myself. And so they would say things like, well, not every everybody can get good grades. It's fine. You don't have to go to university. You don't have, you know, um, you have street smarts instead of book smarts. They used to say, right. Um, and, and I, you know, I think they were meaning well, but now looking back, I realized how, what a blow that was to my sense of self. Right. And Um, making it impossible for you to really get an accurate view of who you are and what your actual abilities were. And so I was saying, it's so important to be able to see that whole picture, not just say, oh, you're smart or no, you're not capable, but to be able to say, and, you know, yes, and is a really important concept that these are all both true and everything can be, many things can be true at the same time. And um, so I think that's when, like you said, when you're smart, well, for girls, that's why they don't get diagnosed. Uh, they're often, they're, they're not stereotypical. They're, if they're smart and um, they have a structure around their house or at school or they have support or they're compensating or internalizing and being overworking perfectionistic, uh, you know, it's very hard uh, for people to get an accurate picture of them. They're people pleasers often. They're not bothering They're not hyperactive acting out little boys. And then often, you know, eventually they become depressed or anxious when they're women. And then that's seen and treated um, or not. But often that's secondary to the ADHD. And when that's understood and treated, then the depression, anxiety often, you know, are much better or go away. Um, imagine coping with all this stuff without knowing it. Of course, you're going to be depressed and anxious. But at some point, women or girls, they don't hit a wall, usually till later if they are smart and, and, and uh, inattentive. Because, but when they go to college sometimes or 
or even, you know, after college when they get married or have careers or children, at some point they're not able to to manage uh, like other people. Maybe they were able to be like earlier and then they hit a wall and then they don't know why, what just hit, you know, even though it's been, they've been controlling it or compensating their whole life at some point they, they hit a wall and then they get, uh, diagnosed if they're lucky. Yeah. You know, I am, I'm the youngest and uh, only had older brothers, but I'm, I'm amazed at how many women I have interviewed so far who had siblings who were diagnosed with ADHD and showed more stereotypical, you know, hyperactivity, um, disruptive traits. And they were labeled as like the good kid, right? So they were the ones who the parents were grateful. They're just like, oh, you're easy. You're not a lot of work. Thank you. (laughs) And they, and they held, you know, and, and then they sort of developed so much anxiety. And like you said, that people pleasing and like the pressure to be the good kid who held it all together. And then, you know, at some point all exploded. Right. Like now, I don't want to, you know, it was my job not to bother, you know, my parents are already had their hands full. They say, yeah, that's very common. And, and so they just keep it inside and, and, uh, and the boy gets treated and everybody understands what's going on. And there just takes many more years for anybody to uh, understand, they just get lost or hide and, um, and nobody understands the difficulty that they're dealing with. Oh, that's mm-hmm. a pretty common thing for girls. And then women, I mean, their biggest coping mechanism is often hiding, even once they're diagnosed. It sounds like you and maybe your generation, you know, and the women you talk to are more out there once they get diagnosed and they know what's going on or they're on medication that they're not as, even if they have some embarrassment or shame, it sounds like you guys are more forthcoming with like, this is, you know, this is like real and this is what I need and you know, advocacy for yourself. Uh, instead of hiding so much. I don't know, is that what you find? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that I, I do see a lot of advocacy. I think when you're diagnosed in adulthood, just because I we have so much empathy for, you know, uh, like I feel like if I can save one woman from going through what I went through in terms of a misdiagnosis uh, and just, you know, always feeling like, you know, I've been diagnosed with depression and anxiety. I was di- uh, diagnosed with PPD and PPA, and I was on, a, you know, various cocktails of medications um, and always felt like it wasn't working, but also felt like, well, if it's this bad on the medication, imagine how bad it'll be off the medication. And so, you know, always sort of upping the dose and feeling like, why am I depressed? I have a good life. So there was that confusion too, which was like, where is this depression even coming from? So, you know, just the, the putting you know, connecting the dots and putting this puzzle together, it just feels like, yeah, immediately you're like, if I could save somebody who's going through this, it'll <laughs> yeah, be all I, been I, worth it. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, also the, how do you, but av- willingness to advocate and open to other people about what you need, that's what, you know, for yourself, <laughs> that's often yeah, well, harder. Yeah. Although I think, I think we do have a gift for just blurting things out and, and being an open book. I've never really been very good at like <laughs> keeping things to myself. So I feel like that is an accidental ADHD yeah. gift for sure, good. which is like, if I could help somebody else by, by blabbing on and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always used to call myself Sophia from the golden girls where I was like, I don't know if I had a stroke, <laughs> but like, I just say I have no self-censor. So uh-huh. I've used it to my advantage. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Like so, I answered your question about like what are some of the advantages, and I always say, you know, ADHD saved me from the life of artificiality and superficiality and mediocrity that I wanted. Like, (laughs) 
I wanted to conform. I wanted to fit in and I couldn't, you know, I tried and I couldn't. So, and it just kept pushing me to find, and I, I had to be really, really interested in something. So I had to keep things interesting. I had to keep moving on to find things that were really of value to me and really meaningful. And even though it was much harder for me to, to write or to organize my thoughts, I had to keep digging deeper until I found some, you know, really pearls at the bottom of my piles kind of, but I had to keep going. And so I, I couldn't just like, oh, okay. I had a, I, I, you know, I had a, it kept pushing me. And so, um, so that was, that's a good thing about ADHD that, you know, you're going to want to, you know, find something that's really, you know, compelling for you. Like that's the key actually to, to find something compelling to help move you, you know, like uh, instead of this discipline as like a berating yourself and, and punishing yourself it's like disciples from the same word as disciple to follow with love and you know that's the key with ADHD to find something compelling that draws your attention to move toward not just a negative kind of you know way to control yourself or fix yourself wait until you're all better kind of and until women say I'm gonna wait till I'm all organized before I let myself feel entitled to have a life, you know, and like that doesn't work. Uh, so, you know, finding something that's really exciting and and getting support that you need, because you're going to need support to fill in some of your gaps here with executive functioning and to keep moving towards an exciting future for yourself. That's meaningful mm -hmm. to you. I think that's another thing we talk about a lot that comes up in conversation a lot is, is how problematic the term superpower can be <laughs> for many people, because, you know, there is a lot of grief. There is a lot of regret yeah. in, in an adult diagnosis. There is a lot of that, like what could have been, how did nobody see the signs? You know, how could my life have been different? Mm -hmm. And, and so what I love about your approach with the radical acceptance too, is that idea that like, in, you know, once you see yourself, um, and you can start to, you know, once you understand what is actually happening, you can start to lean into your strengths and you can start to, you know, see your gifts. And then it's like you're, you do radically transform in terms of who you are. And it, you can kind of look at it as a superpower in it. Well, in its, but you, know, you can yeah. appreciate it can for appreciate so many it. of the gifts. Yeah. But it's also really important to point out like, you know, it's not like, Oh, it's a great gift. You know, it's, it's not just a great gift. It's, you know, you don't want to underestimate or undermine, you know, or non-validate the really high level of difficulty it is to get to that gift. So that's why I said it really has to be all yes. And it can't just be, Oh, this is great. Cause it's difficult. And so you got to really, you know, that's part of the superpower too, to say, okay, well, what do I need to make this you know engine go? You know, I need the fuel. I need the support. I can't go on this journey all by myself kind of. So yeah, to, to not, you know, if you're getting help, you, you want somebody who can help you see your gifts and your strengths and help you move toward that. But you don't want to uh, underestimate, you know, the, the difficulty level. Oh, I love that. My last question is, you know, what are, what do you love most about your ADHD? Oh, well, that's sort of what I said before. I was like, um, I answered the question in advance. Uh, <laughs> I mean, what I have loved about it is like, a, yeah, it, it, it made me have to keep going to find mm -hmm. a unique way to live, you know, that I couldn't just settle for an ordinary life uh, because I couldn't. I tried and I couldn't do it. I couldn't, you know, I graduated college a long time ago. I went home, tried to become a housewife, <laughs> which is a joke. <laughs> but but I think I would have, you know, like, you know, I was trying to do all that for about like three months, you know, I got married and I tried to like play that role and it was like a nightmare. And uh, so I couldn't do that luckily. Um, and, you know, it was many more years before I understood why uh, it was very difficult, but it, like I said, it propelled me to keep trying to search 
and I would hit a barrier. Then I'd go another way and I keep, it made me keep going. I didn't know what else to do. You know, I always said, like, I'm like Monet said, I, I only do two things. Well, you know, paint and garden, you know, but he, sometimes you have very narrow skills, but they're good. And I, it took me a while to find out exactly where was a good fit for me, you know? And so I think you just have to keep going with ADHD and, and not settle for something that doesn't fit you because that won't work. And that's the good thing about ADHD. It just won't work. And, and so you have to keep going till you find something that's, that works for you. Mm-hmm. And marry yeah. well, like Hallowell says, you know, marry the right person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh my goodness. Yes. Hey friend, if there's one thing I've learned about ADHD over the last few years is that we can thrive with the right combination of accountability, planning, coaching, and peer support. Knowing all this, I set out to create the ultimate all-in-one coaching and accountability community for adults with ADHD or learning disabilities. I knew I couldn't do it alone, so I joined forces with one of my favorite ADHD coaches, Alex Gilbert of Capable Consulting, and together we launched the ADHD Lounge. The lounge was created as a safe place for neurodivergent adults away from other social media, where we offer live group calls, co-working, and body doubling every weekday for accountability, focus, and skill development. We have weekly and monthly goal planning sessions to keep yourself on track. We also have one-on-one office hours with myself and Alex, and of course, friendship and lots of peer support. We have three different membership levels to meet you where you're at. So if you're looking for an affordable way to stay connected, productive, and accountable, while also having regular access to ADHD coaching and expertise, then make sure to come join me in the ADHDlounge.com. Again, that's theadhdlounge.com. And as a listener of the Women in ADHD podcast, you can get 30% off your first month with the code PODCAST30. So head to theadhdlounge.com and use the code PODCAST30 to get 30% off your first month. During the early days of my diagnosis, as I was deep into hyper-focus ADHD research mode, I kept searching for some kind of all-in-one, everything you ever needed to know about ADHD and women handbook that I could reference and keep at my fingertips, but I never really found anything that suited me. That's why I've taken everything I've learned about ADHD in women and adults who are socialized as girls, and I've gathered it into a concise, easy-to-access, self-guided, and self-paced course so you can feel like you've got everything you need at your fingertips. It's called, Hey, It's ADHD, and it has everything you need to start loving your brain and living a more fulfilling, gratifying life. I built this course to be helpful wherever you are on your ADHD journey. I am so excited to finally be able to offer this course, and I truly hope this will help you develop a deeper understanding of your ADHD brain and how to embrace it as you build yourself a toolkit for your own life. So head over to womenandadhd.com and click on the Hey, It's ADHD course tab for more information and to get started. Intuition is something I think that is is such a a muscle to build when it comes to uh, following your gut and kind of going with, like you said, like what you're compelled to do. And I think, you know, intuition is something that when you have lived your life undiagnosed, you really kind of stop listening to yourself. You're, you're told that you're doing things wrong by your teachers and, and, you know, by society in so many different ways that I think we tend to lose a lose touch with our intuition. I think that's such an important thing to rebuild as an adult. And you usually have really good intuition, you know, once, once it's released, you know, but I think it's mostly also because you're just coping so hard. I mean, it just takes all your energy to, when you're undiagnosed or untreated and you don't know, it's like going through some jungle and you don't really know what's going on or the way out. And so it just takes a tremendous amount of 
energy. So you just don't even have the luxury of, of, oh, let me stop and see what I want or where I want to go. You just keep going. And so I think that's what happens when you find the right person to help you or the right medication or the right group of people. Then you can, uh, you know, sort of see the light and then you can sort of find your way through it with your intuition. Mm -hmm. Trust yourself. Yeah. Incredible. And for me, this has been such an incredible journey yeah. and I look forward to learning more. Sometimes I feel like the more I learn, the less I know about ADHD. But <laughs> That's because, because it's, it's so limiting in that name. What you're saying is you just, the more you're learning about human beings. I mean, really yeah. when it comes down to it, these are just, we're all human beings. We all have differences. We all have things we do well, things we are challenged. And so I think the bigger, broader lens as you get in this longer and longer is like, okay, here's a diverse human being like all of us and what works for you and, and what do you need to, to become more of who you are more easily. Beautiful. Now with the, uh, with the workbook, the, or the radical guide for women with ADHD, it feels like it's a book club, you know, do do women have book clubs around this radical guide? Do you have an official outline that you offer? I don't, you know, we thought we would do that right away. (laughs) A lot of people just started doing it. So like ADA, who's the National Association for Adults with Learning with ADD, ADA, Mm -hmm. ADD.org, they, they have a book club there that someone leads uh, based on our book. A lot of people use it for, I use it in my groups. I, I don't use it as a strict workbook. I use a lot of the you know, I pare it down a little bit. So to make it more easy to use, but yeah, it can be used in a lot of different ways. And, uh, and people do use it, uh, all over the place. And, uh, yeah, we never got around to like licensing that or whatever. And, uh, I would hope if people use it, you know, have people buy the book, (laughs) but people are using it. And I think it is a great guide, but, uh, because we like it because it's not just about ADHD. It's about you as a woman. And a lot of it's these gender, issues for women not claiming space for themselves, not taking a center stage in their self, not using their voice. And, you know, all women have these issues. And for women with ADHD, it's even more important to, to claim that space, even though you're still disorganized or struggling. So that's sort of the key. Don't wait until you're over your ADHD. That's my final thought, you know, because I see people in their 70s, 80s, they've waited their whole life, spend seven hours a day trying to figure out how to cook dinner, you know, or how to do this or do that. And, you know, they waited and now, you know, you don't want to wait because that's mm-hmm. not going to help you, you know, have any extra energy or any more excitement or it doesn't help stimulate your brain to just focus on everything that you're not good at all day. Right. Yeah. I feel like I, you know, that's one lesson I need to learn more, which is like, you don't have to be at your wits end to ask for help. <laughs> I think that's something that we we bring on a lot as women too, that I feel like I have to do all of this by myself until I am literally at my breaking point. Yeah, no, no, you don't want to do that. Yeah, asking <laughs> for help is a huge issue for women with ADHD and maybe for all women, but women with ADHD, they feel like that is like a reveal about themselves that they don't want other people to see. And so even with kids, this idea of, you know, fostering interdependence and saying, I'm not very good at this, so I'm good at this. Or how about you go do this with your aunt and I'll do this for them. And just, you know, how can we all help each other? And we all can value diversity and we all have difficulties. We all struggle. So moms don't have to hide this terrible secret from their kids. And they always say, I don't want the kids to be like me, but you know, if they do have same, you know, traits or tendencies, you don't want them to feel like you're saying shame, something shaming or about them either. So you say, yeah, this is what I do to help myself. This is how I value differences and difficulties. And so we're all in this together, kind of, you know, would be the ideal. That's beautiful. 
Well, like I said, I feel like with every diagnosis, your book should be the prescription <laughs> required reading. Well, uh, the therapists have used it for many years. I mean, that's sort of what helped uh, get it like launch. And I, I do want to, you know, put a plug for my other book too, which is sort of lost in the shuffle a lot, adult, uh, Journeys Through Adulthood, mm-hmm. which uh, I've just got the rights back to now. And I've just put out on audio tape. So I'm promoting that now because uh, it's hard to find in, in the hardcover, in the print cover now, but it's, it's just been put out in audio. And so that's a great book. I wrote that in the middle there about, it's for men and women and mental health professionals about, you know, what happens after you understand your brain, then what about that search for meaning and identity? And, and then what happens when you get successful? What's that crisis of success about? Then how do you control things, you know, that double-edged sword about, okay, now I'm doing well, but now I'm just creating more things to, you know, control. And so that's a really good book too. So those three books, I think they're all on audio and on Kindle. Awesome. Yeah. I almost exclusively listen to my books, but I, that's good to know. So I will put a link to that in, in the episode notes as well. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much for sitting down with me and I know, it's really talking funny. about it's this. It's amazing that you've just been a year. I mean, you obviously look like you're just owning the whole field here. I mean, like you learned so much and you've helped so many people even in one year. It's amazing. But, well, yeah, that's what I mean. I'm like, this is hyper-focus at its best, right? <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Katie. Yeah, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. And now, almost two years later, let's check in with Sari Solden. Hi, Katie. Hi, Sari Solden. How are you? (laughs) All right. Yeah. So basically when I interviewed you almost two and a half years ago. So I can't believe that when you said that. Almost three years ago, right? December of 20. No, so the end of 21. Yeah. End of 2021. 21, right? December of 2021. Yeah. Yeah. So it's almost two years. And I was celebrating one year of the podcast, which was essentially one year of my own diagnosis. And I was very excited. I had just reached 200,000 downloads for the episode for the podcast. Now I'm reach almost about my three year uh, anniversary, and we're about to hit two million. Wow! So yeah, it's been that's amazing, quite an amazing journey. I just recently released my 150th interview, and at that point, and I'm I've just gone back to grad school too. So I was like, let me. <laughs> I wanted to look back at this anthology and pick out some of the episodes from from the 150 that really have stayed with me that I want people to listen to. Your episode has obviously been one of my most played episodes, obviously one of my favorite. Oh, great. No brainer that it would be in the top 10. But what I also wanted to do while releasing these episodes was to just get a chance to check in. And I know you've been up to a lot recently. I'm shocked that it's been that long. When I read that, I just shocked. I said, what the heck have I been doing? I don't know. <laughs> this is post, I think this is post-lockdown time. We're in this time warp. Exactly. So that's exciting. What are you going back to grad school in? Uh, I'm getting my uh, master's in clinical mental health counseling. Very nice. Yeah. I'm, you know, I've had... Enough women who have asked me if I can recommend therapists to understand what ADHD looks like, and not only what it looks like in adult women, but also just how profound the diagnosis in adulthood can be and how life-changing it can be in terms of our self-concept and how we look at depression and anxiety and executive functioning and all of that. And I I just wanted to like increase that number by one. So, and, oh no, I mean, that we need that. It's like there's nobody, are you going to be able to specialize in that or focus on that? I hope so. That's the plan. Where are you going? 
I met SUNY New Paltz. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. Well, yeah, we really need that. And I'm always looking for people to like, we're always looking for people to take over. There's so few of us, you know, like, so we're really excited to hear that, you know, somebody who really gets it, you know? Yeah, I know. Well, initially, I really wanted to work with, you know, basically carbon copies of me, but I think I'm really going to try to stay open in the next three years, because I feel like there's so much undiagnosed ADHD in so many other realms, right? I think about like eating disorder clinics or or rehab or even working with incarcerated women. Like I just feel like there's ADHD everywhere. So I'm very excited to see where this path takes. <laughs> okay. Well, that's exciting. Yeah. So congratulations on the re-release. So basically you got the rights to the book to publish it and under your own imprint, correct? That's correct. So this is the new book and it's important for me to hold it up because, or for you to know that there's so many versions out there on Amazon. This is the new ones. It's got my name in red, which differentiates it ADD friendly wise from the old one, which had it in green. Um, Basically, you know, I wrote that book in 2002 and yeah, I didn't have the rights and it went out of print, even though it's still on Kindle from the other publisher and I've been able to update it and put it on audio. But there was so much demand for my other two books. I said, well, I realized I have this other great book that everybody loved and it's for men and women and mental health professionals. And so I'm going to see about, you know, cleaning it up, really not a new edition, but cleaning it up, updating it, you know, making it more readable. It was just needed a lot of there's so many old terms now when you go back to look at something and things are just not in existence at cleaning up the language and cleaning up the format and references. So, yeah, so I'm excited. I just re-released it and I'm doing a series of free webinars for people to, uh, to come to know it again. And cause it was a great guide and it was really has a through line for my later work with radical guide. I see now there's a definitely threads of what developed into radical guide were there at that time. Oh, absolutely. And I think there's so much, I mean, really one of the key points that is in all three of your books that really resonates and stays with with me and so many of the women who have read your work, work books and the books in general is just this idea that you can be an extraordinary human being and still struggle, you know, that you can still need support but also be a, an incredible human being. And and I think it's, you know, in the journeys through adulthood, you talk about the fact that your weaknesses don't cancel out your strengths, which is so simple and poignant. And why is that so novel? <laughs> well, exactly. Why is it such a radical idea? That's why we wrote that other book. But when you do grow up undiagnosed, that's what happens. You get, and that's what I talk a lot about in journeys, is distorted sense of self. So all you're really doing is narrowly focusing on what's wrong with you. And it's not only distortion of yourself. When you read the book, I realized it's a distortion of the whole journey. The point is not to get over who you are, to get fixed. And that's really what's presented to a lot of women and, and men, you know, if they're diagnosed or not, like, okay, now let's, you know, you, you have your diagnosis now, get over it, <laughs> so, you know, and go on to push yourself and, and, you know, and get over all your chronic executive function problems. And that's such a destructive message, but it really keeps you stuck. Right. Absolutely. And one other thing, now I listened to the audiobook, which has a very, has a different cover, right? Yeah. Cause every publisher, yeah, that I gave those rights to another publisher who they couldn't use the same cover. So it's very confusing world out there. You know, that is updated a little bit, but then that was even a few years ago. So this is even updated, you know, more cleanly. Okay. Are there examples that you have of what you updated other than the language? I mean, was there anything? But you know, it's more of the formatting, you know, in the, in the print and the language. Okay. 
but the message is actually why I put it out when I reviewed it was the message was always the same, basically, and that I've seen the same message since I started this work in 93, uh, 88, really. But the reason um, I wanted to put it out, the reason I originally wrote it was because, just a retrospective for a second, is that you know, when I wrote that first book, everybody got diagnosed at the same time in the early 90s when we realized that adults still had what we call ADD or ADHD without hyperactivity in those days. But by the time I had been seeing you know, adults for about 10 more years, at some point I realized, so people aren't all coming in at the same place anymore. Therapists don't know what to treat people and how people don't know what to do now. I've got diagnosed, I'm on, got my gold-plated new planner and uh, I've got medication, but then there was this blank. So then I said, I could start to see these shifts that clients were having when they came in in all different places after the first year or two. And they were all focusing and needed to focus on different things. Like mostly that journey too is about after diagnosing and understanding your brain. It's like now it's about your identity and focusing on yourself and that crisis and then that fixing that distorted, working on that distorted, expanding that distorted sense of self. And then the journeys three, even after that, some people were, okay, now I understand how to protect myself and who I am. But then how do I do that and be with other people? Or how do I be myself and then also interact with the world or contribute to the world? So that was that third journey. Or now that I'm being successful, now I'm completely overwhelmed again. What's happening? You know, so because they never learned how to make choices and all these good. I'm sure you're experiencing that now. Now, way too many things are happening. Now you're overloaded, and overwhelmed. You know, but it's like, you know, having the lottery, you know, being, uh, you know, freaking out about money versus like not having any money. So it's different, but it still feels scary. Like, oh, why am I still overwhelmed? So learning to make choices and have a criteria for how to live your life then is what that journey three is about. You look like you're identifying. <laughs> yes, that absolutely resonated with me. Absolutely. Because there is that sort of excitability element of wanting to do all the things and having a really difficult time saying no, because I just really wish I could clone myself, you know, and then the the inevitable burnout that comes with that. So having those sort of self-care boundaries are so important. Exactly. And that's what that really third journey is so important about, because you never usually when you, before you get diagnosed, you have these successes, you you know, anything great comes your way. Great. I'll take it, you know, and you don't have a criteria. You don't know. It feels scary to say no. Like, you know, you're not going to get anything back again. It's like, and so it takes a long time to get used to being successful and, and being able to say no to things to protect yourself and choose much more carefully. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I also love about the going through the, the journeys was exploring just how very, very small, subtle life changes can have such a large effect, right? Even just changing, you know, wearing red socks to work. Well, that was such a great story about Don. There's a picture in there about this, you know, he's an insurance salesman. He's dreaming about being a poet. And what I like about it is like, it's very, it shows the complexity of these journeys. It's not like, okay, just change jobs, for instance, with Don, that character. You know, he didn't need to change jobs, but he needed to, he couldn't change jobs, but he needed to start letting people see more about who he was. First, he went to an ADD conference and he started to be more himself, meet people. And eventually, instead of being all straight laced, it didn't reflect who he was. He started showing up with red socks, you know, a little bit here, a little bit there. Then he would start to go to poetry readings and he started to have a whole big expanded life. He didn't have to just, it's not all about shifting and changing big careers always, you know. Right. And I think that that might even be a tendency with ADHD uh, to make those like, you know, life bombs go off. Right. Especially when I, you know, especially I work with so many women who are in really 
unhealthy marriages. Yeah. <laughs> right. And working through some of the messages and some of the conversations um, and some of the, you know, just the patterns that have happened in marriages and the tendency is to be like, girl, you need to leave that person. But obviously that's, you know, not the option for so many of us and, and, you know, nor should it be, but, you know, really that idea of like how very, very small incremental changes can make such a big difference. I think it's such an important message. Exactly. That's what I liked about the character development in, in the book. It wasn't like all or nothing it was very slow. And even like, like Beth, character Beth, you know, even after she got diagnosed, it looked pretty cool. Look like, okay, I'll make a schedule and okay, I'll go back to school and stuff. And then even then it was like, oh no, that didn't work out either. It was like pseudo acceptance. Okay. Now I've got it all together and I've got the medication. Now I got this great schedule, you know, which lasted about two days. You know, it was all these false expectations about really where you're supposed to be going, you know, really what this idea of wholeness and and figuring out who I am in all these beautiful kind of facets. And you know, that's sort of the idea about neurodiversity, all the ways we're human beings, full human beings. Yeah, oh, it's really fantastic. I'm so excited for it to be back out in the world and um, uh, loved all, all three books. Oh, good. I'm glad. Oh, my goodness. I mean, I'm just so excited to have a chance to get to see you again. And thank you for the influence you've not only had on me and on so many of us. I mean, I can't I have no idea if they're ever going to come out with the numbers of how many women have been diagnosed over the last few years. But it's it's got to be insane. Really changed a lot during <laughs> during the pandemic. It's so <laughs> many, right? What do you make of these numbers? I don't know. I'm just starting to talk to myself. I'm going to go on TikTok today and check it out, you know, because I resisted it. And, you know, obviously it, that seems to be what's changed a lot of things. I don't really know too much about it, but from what I hear and where people are coming from, the gatekeepers sort of have left you know, and people are talking to each other and understanding. This is sort of what happened in my years when it, then it was just the internet <laughs> and women started talking to each other and we started defining for ourselves what was happening. We pushed our way into these organizations and into conferences. And I think that's sort of the new iteration of it now is TikTok and people just, you know, defining. They have to then go after that and, you know, find out, you know, really what is going on. Something might not be ADHD, it might be something else, but, you know, at least it introduces and it destigmatizes and it makes you feel connected. So whatever is out there, it's a good thing, I think. Right. Any Anything that leads us to this belief that I am not the problem, I am not fundamentally the problem that, you know, it's really, it's, this is information for us. This is, this is leading us to sort of believe, oh, there's another way of looking at this, I think is so profound. Yeah, the pathologizing, you know, I think that is finally, you know, being broken by all these, you know, more non-hierarchical ways of looking at ourselves and at these issues before, you know, when I was starting, I was like, here's the hierarchy of academia, and we'll tell you who, who you are, and, and what the truth is about your experience. And that's what I think is being, you know, changed, luckily, hopefully. Yeah, it'll be interesting um, to see where this goes over the next few years. <laughs> well, I mean, I already am happy that people are talking about neurodivergency, you know, more than, you know, I don't like to talk about ADHD anymore. It was so limiting and it was such a little box and, you know, women and people have just different kinds of brains and to understand how you work and, you know, all the, for all the myriad of reasons, you know, is a good thing. I know I've started calling ADHD the gateway diagnosis to uh, <laughs> to the idea of a neurodivergent brain. And, you know, exploring all of that. So, well, thank you for your time. Again, it's been so, I'm just so grateful for what you put out into this world and just, um, uh, you know, grateful for this opportunity to thank you again. 
Oh, I'm, I'm so happy to reconnect with you and I'm, I'm happy for your generation of women to be taking up the mantle and, and carrying on. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. Yeah. I love that quote from it's Jane Fonda who said, I used to think life was a sprint. And then as I got older, I realized it was a marathon. And now I realize it's a relay. <laughs> I love that. No, I didn't know that. <laughs> you hadn't heard that one. I love that quote so much, especially as I think of like my 16 year old daughter getting all fired up about politics and the environment. And I'm like, I am entering my no longer angry phase of life. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love that. I'm going to remember that. But that, that's so true. Right. You know? Is that a nice? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'm happy. Thank you for doing that. <laughs> oh, well, thank you, Sari. <laughs> all right. We well, keep in touch. Then. I'm anxious to follow your journey. Oh, absolutely. Thanks again. Okay. Thanks. There you have it. Thank you for listening. And I really hope you enjoyed this episode of the Women and ADHD podcast. If you'd like to find out more about me and my coaching programs, head over to womenandadhd.com. If you're a woman who was diagnosed with ADHD and you'd like to apply to be a guest on this podcast, visit womenandadhd.com slash podcast guest. And you can find that link in the episode show notes. Also, you know, we ADHDers crave feedback, and I would really appreciate hearing from you, the listener. Please take a moment to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts or Audible. And if that feels like too much and I totally get it, please just take a few seconds right now to give me a five-star rating or share this episode on your own social media to help reach more women who maybe have yet to discover and lean into this gift of neurodivergency. And they may be struggling and they don't even know why. I'll see you next week when I interview another amazing woman who discovered she's not lazy or crazy or broken, but she has ADHD. And she's now on the path to understanding her neurodivergent mind and finally using this gift to her advantage. Take care till then. Okay, before we get started with today's episode, have you heard the awesome news? Llama Life now has an iOS app so you can take it with you wherever you go. I have been using Llama Life consistently on my computer for a year now. A year. That's unprecedented. That's like a lifetime in ADHD terms. And now with the new iOS app, I'm able to seamlessly transition between my computer and my iPhone so that my favorite little productivity coach is with me whenever I need it. So what is so special about Llama Life? Well, for starters, it's not a fancy new calendar or planner or complicated productivity management system. It's a time boxing, single tasking program that easily integrates with your already existing organizational systems. If you're like me and you struggle with time blindness or maintaining focus throughout your day, then this is the app for you. I love Llama Life because it's simple, effective, and beautifully designed. And dare I say, it makes even the most mundane chore more fun and colorful. If you want to check out the iOS app for yourself, head to the App Store for a free trial and start enjoying that Llama Life for yourself.